0: Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is brought to you by the X71 Independence, 4 million pounds of fuel, one nuclear weapon, and 270,000 moving parts built by the lowest bidder. And welcome back, everybody, to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, once again, I am your host, Ben Siders. The man sitting across from me is Kirk Damon.
1: That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise.
0: Yes. Uh, so we actually had somebody ask why why Kirk says that at the beginning of every episode. Uh, Kirk, I'll throw that one to you.
1: Yeah, that's actually something I started doing a, a while ago, and it's so that people know how to spell it, because I've discovered that when people, uh, I, I tell them that, they spell it correctly, whereas in most cases, they tend to spell it K-U-R-T. Yeah, they think you're Kurt. Yeah, and, you know, and as much as I might be you know, appreciate being attached to potentially you know an old uh, St. Louis Rams quarterback or certain actors. Um, it doesn't really spell right. Yeah,
0: exactly. So uh, today's topic uh, is going to be an everyday legal concept. At least it's everyday to attorneys, uh, but something you, if you're not a lawyer, may not be aware of. It's called force. I don't know how to pronounce this. Force, force majeure. majeure. Force majeure. Uh, it's a it's a law French term. I know people usually think law terms are all Latin, but we actually borrow a lot of legal terminology from uh, French and it's all butchered and anglicized and, pr- and spelled terribly and pronounced <laughs> wrong. <so laughs> and we mispronounce it. Yeah, and so it's called Law French but a force majeure basically means superior force. Sometimes in American law we call these Acts of
1: God. Now why we're talking about Acts of God is because, well it's a few weeks ago when you guys are listening to this, um, there was this sort of major event which occurred in the United States and in yes. particular occurred over St. Louis called an eclipse.
0: Yeah, so if you were living under a rock, literally living under a rock, you would not have noticed. Yeah, <laughs> but
1: you probably did notice it otherwise and that's where we kind of did it in. and I have to admit, you know, my immediate take upon seeing the eclipse, uh, we went down to the Endangered World Center and saw it down there and, you know, one of the things that was the kind of cool about it is thinking about what this would have looked like to a culture that didn't have the eclipse glasses. So you wouldn't have actually seen anything because you couldn't look at the sun up until totality
0: occurred. Yeah, I took my kids down to a park down in Festus to see it, and I'd never seen anything near a, to- a total eclipse. We've seen a partial one, and I put seen in air quotes because there's really not much to see if you don't have yeah. something to look at it with. And you're right. If you are if you imagine being, you know, ancient peoples who don't have any way to look at this, you probably wouldn't notice anything until it was, at, I don't know. What, about 80% covered, it started to kind of change the lighting a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the things we definitely commented about, and it's, you know, and I, I, I'll joke about this as what it is. I mean, I, I was an undergraduate physics major, so obviously it was the uh, sort of science astronomy nerd. <clears throat> um
0: I, I was an English major. I have no excuse.
1: <laughs> One of the things that we definitely got into, you know, in conjunction with it was just the way the light changed and the fact that everything looked different. It looked you know. like right after it rains at yeah. first. Yeah, it's kind of a weird, you know, sort of occurrence. And you start to feel like something's not right. And it really is kind of an occurrence thing. And so, the, the uh, as I sort of said, the subtitle of this episode is the end of the world episode.
0: Yeah, so we're going to talk about uh, the eclipse inspired this topic and, you know, how how things like that, uh, big, big events that are, you know, acts of God or just things that happen in nature beyond anybody's reasonable control, interact with the law. What actually happened if
1: the sun got swallowed?
0: Yes. So uh, in law, uh, force majeure usually refers to a description of a type of event or circumstance beyond anybody's control. And the legal effect of a force majeure is that it excuses people from having to perform certain contract obligations that are rendered impossible by the occurrence of the event. Yeah, and it may may make some sense to give us just a
1: few basic contract terms for you guys who are out there. Um, And this is stuff you're going to get in sort of contract law 101. The first one of which is basically what is a contract.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of misconception about this. I've had people tell me, "Look, I've got a copy of the contract. I'm going to rip it up, and now it's no good." Like, no, you just <laughs> you just destroyed evidence. Is all you've done.
1: Yeah, exactly. This contract still exists, and I think the the way I've always sort of put it is, it's a contract's an agreement. And I remember my you know, con law or con law contract law professor telling me, you know, that that's a lot of what you would encounter in conjunction with contracts is it's any kind of agreement. Yeah. The key point about it is it's an agreement that the law thinks is enforceable. And uh, so there's lots of you know you can just say have an agreement agreement where the law would look at it and say, no, that's not enforceable. So yeah, you can't so agree to do something illegal, for example.
0: Exactly right. And, and that's the key concept behind a contract, a legally enforceable exchange of promises. And uh, and it must be bargained for. You can't just gratuitously offer to do something and somebody says, okay, yep. that's just a gratuitous offer. So if I've got a pen in my hand right now and I say, Kirk, I'll give you this pen for $1. Kirk says, okay, now we have a contract yep. because we've agreed to, uh, to an exchange of, of, uh, of services, basically. Yep. He gets a pen, I get a buck. But if I say, I'll just give you this pen and he says fine, I'm not obligated to do anything.
1: Yep, and that's, uh, the, the legal word in that and what gets used is the term consideration.
0: Consideration, yeah. And it what must consi- be something offered in exchange.
1: Yeah, and that's essentially what it is, is that each party has to get some value out of the contract in order for there to be a contract. Now, consideration can be a relatively minor concept. It can be something which is, in in some sense, you know, not physical. I mean, the examples of ones where, you know, an IP law we bump into is the exchange of goodwill. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea of an association of, hey, you have this knowledge of this association. Well, you remember back you.
0: In, like, the Nineties, everybody was doing Columbia House and all that kind of stuff to get the you know get fifteen CDs for a penny. Oh yeah, penny.
1: I, I did that for well, like four why, years in college.
0: Why the penny? Because there has to be some consideration or form a contract. That's why all these contracts say, in exchange for good and valuable consideration of one dollar, you know everything's yep. for sale for a dollar. So uh, that's what the consideration is for. Now once once you have a contract, if you fail to perform, uh, then you can be sued for failure to perform. Yep. And uh, in American law, we don't usually just make people perform contracts yep. if they don't. Uh, instead, our preferred remedy is something called damages, which is a fancy legal word for money. Yeah. I mean, there can be other damages outside of money. But yeah, the, the thing you
1: primarily really get into is the, the recognition of the United States law that basically says, look, we're not going to force you to do something. I mean, it, it starts to sound like indentured servitude at that yeah. point in time. The, the
0: liberal tradition um, you know, generally looks down upon forcing people to do things. Now, there are cases where you can, but those aren't going to be relevant here. Yep. Uh, the, the reason this all matters in the context of force majeure is if you don't perform – but it's because of a force majeure event, then you can't be sued. Oh, you can be sued, but you have a defense. You would yep. say, well, I, you know, I, I couldn't perform. So uh, let's, let's look at a couple of examples that may tease this out uh, a little bit more. So to establish uh, a force majeure excuse for non-performance, uh, the failure to perform has to be caused by the event, obviously. Yep. Uh, the event has to be unexpected and unavoidable. And the event also has to be reasonably beyond your control as a person who didn't perform, and you couldn't have prevented its consequences. So, like, uh, we've got sort of a, a, a situation down in Houston right now, a lot of force majeure going on yeah. down I in mean, Houston. Yeah, I mean, and
1: I think that's one of those things we can look at and say natural disasters is one of those things that generally gets used as sort of a law school example of what is a force majeure. Now, because of the fact that this is, a, you know, a science fiction and, you know, nerd-based podcast, you know, we're going to talk about things like alien invasion, uh, you know, asteroid yeah. collision with the earth, things like that, just because those are a lot more fun.
0: Yeah. So a couple of examples on the difference. So suppose you're a software engineer, uh, you're working on a project, say, for a customer, and after working for an entire day, you never bothered to save your work, and the power goes out for a few seconds, and you lose it all. Yep. This has actually happened to me, <laughs> uh, which is probably why I'm not a software engineer anymore. Uh, is this a force majeure event? Well, pretty straightforward. Was your failure to perform inhibited by the event? Yes. Yes. You know, was the event unexpected and unavoidable?
1: Yeah. Yeah, sort of. I mean, I think a, you know potentially a power outage is something you we should know potentially it can expect happen, at some point in time.
0: But the particular event, right? Like, yeah. a, a tornado is obviously always unexpected and unavoidable, but we do know they're going to happen.
1: Yeah, and I think that's one of the interesting things about this sort of unexpected and unavoidable, and we're going to get a little bit into some this sort of law interpretation here. You know, we say like a tornado is unexpected. If you live in Tornado Alley, presumably tornadoes are not mm-hmm. entirely unexpected, but any particular one tornado is unexpected. Yeah, I think that's
0: what we focus on. And And finally, was was the event beyond your reasonable control? Well, yeah, you can't stop the power from going out, but could you have prevented its consequences? Well, of course you could have. You could have a UPS, you could have saved more often, turned autosave on, uh, or done any number of things that are are now commonplace and standard for anybody who works in this industry. So that would not be a force majeure event. At the same time, you sort of look at it and say, you know,
1: when we talk about the idea of a reasonable control, and I'm just going to jump back to Tornado Alley again, your house is destroyed by a tornado because you live in Tornado Alley. Isn't it, you know, within your you know reasonably ability to reasonably prevent the consequences to simply not live there or yeah. <laughs> not to build a house there? And again, I think that's one of these things where we're now we're we're sort of looking at the law. And I think one of those issues you get into in a lot of legal interpretation is you have these words, but at the same time you sort of look at them and say, I can find a scenario in which yes, you could have avoided the consequences. But I think a lot of uh, American jurisprudence, in particular, what we're looking at is we we recognize that that these kind of things can happen, Mm they may happen, but do we expect it to happen right now to this person?
0: Um, and it's we, reasonably avoidable, yeah, right? Reasonably like just telling avoidable. somebody don't live anywhere where there could possibly be a natural disaster, well, you have to live somewhere. Yeah. And no matter I mean, where you go, something's going to go some wrong. some
1: form of natural disaster. If it's not tornadoes, it's earthquakes or hurricanes. Um, so the more
0: the more classic example would be where you run, say, a banquet hall, you've got a bunch of wedding receptions or events scheduled for the weekend, and then a tornado destroys the building. This is a clear and easy case. You know, yep. There's nothing you could have done. That's essentially the law school
1: example of you know, what exactly yeah. force majeure is. It's an event that's completely beyond your control, and the important thing about it is it's also very clear at that point in time, you can't perform. I mean, yeah. the the wedding, you know, reception requires the banquet hall. You don't have, and you know, an alternate facility or anything along those lines. What can you do?
0: Well, turning to the eclipse, uh, in, in what circumstance could a, a say a total eclipse be considered a force majeure event? Um, this is kind of a weird one as I was thinking about this yesterday because you know when an eclipse occurs is entirely predictable now. Yep. Newtonian mechanics for uh, the movement of the moon is are you know what are well-understood and have been well-understood for a long time, Uh, the eclipse is unavoidable, but is it unexpected? Yeah, you have to believe that this is expected. I mean, we know far in advance that it's going to
1: occur. We know exactly where it's going to occur. I mean, let's face it, you know, they've been selling, you know, eclipse viewing goggles for, you know, how many months um, up until this point in time.
0: But I think probably the most important aspect of this is I can't think of a contractual obligation that you could not be able to perform because of an eclipse. Yeah, and again, there, I suppose there's a possibility of something which would be You, know, you because have to of have it, it, you, something you, you, very time-sensitive, right? Like you have to perform something at exactly this time outdoors in the path of totality and it requires light. Yeah,
1: <laughs> and and the problem with it is you presumably wouldn't schedule that. That's kind of where you get into that you can avoid it. Why yeah. would you be scheduling that You just that reschedule event. it for, yeah.
0: for literally five minutes later and you'd be fine. Yeah. You know? um, so we, we couldn't come up with much but flipping this, there's a, sort of a related and interesting uh, set of circumstances. I saw a story on USA Today about couples who were married during the eclipse. So here's an interesting puzzle. What if your wedding photographer, or say your officiant, doesn't show and you miss the chance to get your wedding pictures taken during the eclipse or to get married during the eclipse at all? Now, is this force majeure or is this something else?
1: Well, I think you're probably looking at basically that's an ordinary contract breach. I mean, it's you don't have the eclipse, the the event causing it. Now, part of the reason maybe why didn't they show up? So an example could potentially be, hey, they got in a car wreck on the yeah. way down there. One can now argue that the car wreck is itself a force majeure event.
0: Yeah, Exactly. Um, so that one's probably more of an ordinary contract breach. And there's actually a case in law school that's kind of like this, where a photographer doesn't show up, and that one's more focused on damages. You basically get your money back. But I think in that case, the uh, the bride had tried to sue to have the entire wedding party brought back in to like restage the event and have the pictures taken. And the court said, no, we're not doing
1: that. Yeah, and particularly in this event, I think the thing you've got is assuming you want a wedding picture taken during the, for- the during the totality, something along those lines. It's not something which can be restaged again for you know at least five years, depending yeah. well, on exactly. Yeah, there's another the one coming to
0: Missouri, you uh, know. Illinois. Uh, 2023, 20, I think, 24. Yeah, five
1: years from now, yeah. we've got another totality coming across Illinois. It actually is missing Missouri for the most part. It's hitting the sort of bottom. Yeah, part the, the Boot Deal
0: area. Yeah, because
1: yeah. it it's coming out from Mexico, if I remember correctly, and going to towards sort of the the northeastern yeah, yeah.
0: corner. Um, so the types of things that are usually considered force majeure are things like hurricanes and floods. like Any we're kind of natural Houston, disaster. Any kind of natural disaster. Uh, the other major category, I kind of just bucket it together as forms of civil unrest or civil uh, disturbances like invasions, wars, uh, now acts of terrorism. We used to not put that in contracts, but we do now. Yep. Uh, riots, strikes, uh, and you also see in American contracts, especially, rebellion revolution, and insurrection. <laughs>
1: yeah, things we're sort of used to, um, I yeah. guess, you know, as to what we would potentially cause. Now, interesting, we mentioned acts of terrorism. A lot of times, acts of terrorism are actually now specifically excluded, yeah. um, and that's a sort of important thing to keep in mind, where it's, the, you know, a contract may have a force majeure clause that says the following things are sort of force majeure events, and it's acknowledged. Sometimes, acts of terrorism are actually called out individually, mm-hmm. um, and I think part of
0: the reason Especially is Especially insurance, just, I think, they tend to use writers a lot yeah, to cover that um, That's one
1: of the things I've encountered a lot, like if you actually put on an event, um, so if you actually, you know, get... A banquet hall, or something like that. You're putting on an event, and you need to insure the event. Um, they oftentimes won't insure against an act of terrorism. They'll insure against other, you know, force majeure events, but they won't insure against an act of terrorism. We
0: also get into causation problems here, right? So let's say we're having an event here in St. Louis, and we're requiring, you know, uh, fresh seafood to be flown in from Boston. But there's a terrorist attack in Boston, like say the the, the marathon bombing or something, yep. and the whole city's on lockdown, and and the stuff can't be flown in. Um, I mean, we can't provide the food that we promised for the event. But it's from a terrorism act that took place, you know, 1,200 miles away. I don't know how far away Boston is. It's a long ways away, <laughs> yeah. right? So is is the terrorism act really responsible for our failure to perform? Are we are we obligated to find some alternative source? Yeah, and I think those are where you really get into the issues in conjunction this with This is what this. people hire lawyers for to figure yeah. this out.
1: And I think one of the key about this is when you're talking about people who are going to be enforcing this kind of force majeure clause – You know, you always have the possibility of it just – the damage is being mitigated by the the performance anyway. Usually what people are talking about is a situation where either it couldn't be or the person didn't. So that's a good example is, you know, hey, I'm saying there's going to be seafood flown in. I'm intending to fly the seafood in from Boston. It turns out there's a major event, so it now can't be flown in from Boston. Maybe that's a force majeure event. But now I can get it flown in from Florida, and I do it. And that actually gets us into another contract um, thing related to it, which is mitigation of damages. Um which is the idea that the person who had this force majeure event occur occur, they may have been excused from performing under the contract, they may still have out damages, but now what they've come to is they've said, hey, what I can try to do is make still alternate get the event arrangements, work it. yeah make it work, and mitigate those damages. So now it may be something where, yes, you didn't get quite the food you wanted to, yeah. maybe you're entitled to something. You maybe know, some you didn't get your main
0: lobster, but you got, you got something delicious from Florida instead. Yeah, you got rock lobster instead. instead, yeah. And, you know, you're going to go to a jury and, and complain about that and say, I'm entitled to a bunch of money. I mean, you're, you're entitled to the difference between the performance you got and the performance you were owed. And in a case like that, it's probably not that big of a difference. Yeah,
1: and a lot of it depends on sort of what is the inconvenience, you know, how important was it. Now, if you were having the main lobster fest and you'd sold tickets, you know, advertising that people are going to get to and have Maine lobster, that may be a different issue yeah. entirely.
0: <laughs> That's when I'd be turning to my insurance policy, I think. <laughs> Let's talk about some actual things that have happened, and then we'll get into some more fun hypotheticals. Yep. Uh, 9-11 and the anthrax scare.
1: Yeah, and 9-11 and the anthrax scare is a really good sort of, I think, uh, piece of the idea of a force majeure because it was such a major event, and it shut down
0: so much of the country. Shut off the stock markets, yep. it grounded air flight. I mean, I, I I wasn't an attorney at the time. I can't even imagine what it was like to try. I I was,
1: um, you know, and I distinctly recall, you know, going into somebody's office and, you know, watching the grabbing hold of a a TV that was literally to review evidence videos, um, and tuning it in to see what was going on in conjunction with it. Um, The other interesting thing about it, as you're sort of talking to Force Majeure, and actually as an IP one, it didn't come directly out of 9-11, but it did come out of the Anthrax scare. Um, A number of filings that were actually made to the United States Copyright Office, because of the security um, implementation that was put in to deal with the Anthrax, the Copyright Office shares a post office with a lot of the United States government, and the filings were actually destroyed. That's yeah, right, because
0: they irradiated them, right? Yeah, they
1: irradiated them and it destroyed some of the ink in conjunction with the uh, the forms that were submitted.
0: That's important for copyright because to get a copyright registration, especially in the early 2000s before the government discovered the internet, yep. uh, you had to do everything by mail and you had to mail in a specimen or uh, a copy of what you were seeking yep. copyright protection on. And, and what, so what they got was a blank sheet of paper. Well, yeah, that's not that, black that valuable. a blank sheet of paper actually because mm. of the irradiation. The, but one of the interesting things that you sort of bumped into with it
1: as well is they didn't necessarily know which ones had been destroyed. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, you had sort of various things and, and a lot of it was then how does the government deal with that? That's usually a very good example of a force majeure because under the copyright law, you really need the copyright registered. This is not something which is dealt with by damages. You need the copyright registered so you can deal with a secondary lawsuit. If you're now dealing with, hey, I've got somebody ripping off this copyright, but the government hasn't received my filing and I don't know they haven't received my filing, what do I do?
0: Yeah. That's that's a that's a tough one. Um, and didn't, did something similar happen with the patent office where they couldn't get stuff on time? And because the patent everything has deadlines, yep. especially at the patent office. And if you miss the deadlines, you lose your patent application. Yeah, there were some issues
1: associated with it. I think the, the biggest thing you had with the patent office is because the patent office shut down. As soon as the patent office shuts down, you tend to have the um, the the process kick in that basically says deadlines get told
0: because of the shutdown. Let's talk about some uh, some fun hypotheticals. Um, uh, solar flare. This is something that actually is not. It's not a hypothetical. This happens, and every it's been a while. But every once in a while, you'll see something in the news about a big solar flare and a bunch of uh, material heading our way that can knock out uh, electronics, can knock out uh, power system. Yep. Um, force majeure event. I mean, I think you've got to, think to say it it to yes, be, right? it has to be. I mean, again, but it's... Never it's ca- I've
1: never seen it called out
0: in a contract.
1: Yep. It would just fall into the category of acts of God. I think you have to call it, again, you have to call it that. It is, it, again, are they expected? Yeah, they're expected, but we're not expecting to them to be damaging enough to actually cause a problem on Earth, and we don't know when they're going to specifically occur, so arguably unexpected. Obviously, once it happens, it probably is unavoidable. Now, the issue with it is, and this is, I think, one of those questions you get into, we generally know the solar flare occurs a number of minutes before it actually yeah. has any impact On Earth, so one arguably could say that it's not completely unavoidable. Because hey, if I've got a server that could be damaged, I potentially can shut systems down. I can take measures to mitigate. mitigate, Measures to mitigate.
0: All right, what about uh, zombie apocalypse or other (laughs) sort of weird sickness or plague? particularly if unleashed by the government. Yeah, this is one of those I think is actually
1: a, a very fun sort of force majeure question because one of the things you bump into is assuming you start talking about a weird sickness or a plague or something like that, you don't really know what it's going to do. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, we talk about zombie apocalypse. There are all sorts of different versions of zombie apocalypse out there. I mean, you have the 28 Days Later zombie apocalypse. Yep. You have the Night of the Living Dead zombie apocalypse. Those are totally different.
0: Setting aside that, that you know, there's a lack of capacity for all the various torts committed by the zombies. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, uh, That'll be another episode, I have a yeah, whole like. other
0: episode, yeah, a capacity, um, it, it's, it presents a strange a strange situation because what what category does that fall into? I guess civil unrest maybe to declare martial law? Yeah, I mean, you got to believe that some form of civil unrest if you look at it, you can even say it's arguably a rebellion. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think that's the, you know, those kind of things is to get into. Acts of terror? Uh, the problem with it is, is, acts of terror implies that you're sort of purposely trying to terrorize it people. you have
0: some kind of goal besides eating people. Yeah, <laughs>
1: you know, it, it, you're trying to cause terror, I think is usually the expectation of acts of terror, whereas presumably zombies are, you know, eating to survive. Um, but yeah, the, you get some some weird sort of things when you talk about these. The other thing, we, and we mentioned this previously before having the show, one of the problems you get into as well with the zombie apocalypse is, let's face it, if it's that bad, is there any functioning legal system anyway?
0: Yeah, and that actually happened during the Reconstruction Era. Shortly after the Civil War, most of the government institutions in the South were shut down, and there were cases where literally there were no courthouses open. A lot of the areas were still under martial law, and there were still people out going about their lives and trying to enforce agreements and make their society. Work and there's no functioning courthouse to enforce a contract. So uh, and that got into really weird, like constitutional law and federalism questions about if the government's not providing a form of government because uh, yeah. in the Constitution, the federal government will ensure all the states provide a republican form of government. Can you sue the federal government at that point?
1: Yeah, and there's uh, the, uh, the interesting thing about it is is that itself a, a force majeure? Do you actually have a force majeure <laughs> causing the issue that you can't enforce a contract? So I mean, we've talked about the idea of you know acts of terrorism, something like that. What does the United States Supreme Court is knocked out. Yeah, then You know, now we have the issue of, hey, you've got a case pending in front of the United States Supreme Court, which has an effect. You arguably have a force majeure event that you can't get that case heard.
0: How about an asteroid impact? This doesn't have to be like a a, a planet-killing asteroid, but just something big enough to do a lot of damage. Yeah. Um, I mean, that seems like a clear force majeure, but... We track asteroids pretty well, I think, yeah. and we track a couple thousand of them at least. That's uh, also
1: one where we presumably would know, would with some would know, Advance right?
0: notice. Now, I think the issue
1: with it is, and as people have talked about, you know, in conjunction with a lot of the asteroid scanning things, that notice may not be very
0: long, just yeah. because we
1: can't scan a lot of the sky.
0: Yeah, and then and then, I mean, how do you mitigate that? I mean, I think the whether whether you can <laughs> mitigate the consequences is, is a pretty tough question. To a
1: answer. lot of that depends up probably on what exactly is you know how big is the asteroid yeah, and stuff like it that hit? and where is it going to hit. You know if it's going to hit in the Mojave desert you probably can get everybody out of the way of it. Yep. You know it's going to hit an ocean you may have some you know, secondary environmental effects. Tsunami, what you had, basically. Sort of, yeah, tsunami, yeah. something like that. What can you really
0: do? Well, this is, this is the one I liked the most. We talked about alien invasion, but I think just the fact of alien contact, if at some point uh, we have clear contact from extraterrestrial intelligence, would that alone be enough to be considered a force majeure
1: event. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. And the, the reason I think it's so interesting is because it doesn't really have a direct impact on any of these contracts or anything else.
0: No, but it fundamentally changes everything we think about our place exactly. in the universe. I know. mean, and, and it's going to, it would have such a
1: major impact on the, the functioning of not just the United States, but every country around the world what would happen because of this and and I think part of it is the fear of what exactly is the alien Mm -hmm. contact I mean at the point in time we make first contact you know we have a close encounters of the third kind type of thing we don't know if they're friendly we don't know if they're not you know, stuff like that, and it's, you know, so much of, I think, science fiction movies related to alien contact is a lot of the fear of are they friendly or not. Uh, one that's, you know, whatever you think of the movie, I think is actually very well played out in Independence Day. Yep. Because, you know, in Independence Day, it's the idea of, you know, hey, are these guys friendly? There's a lot of people coming to welcome them. There's all them. these attempts to contact
0: them, and yep. which end bloodily.
1: And it ends very badly, and and one of my favorite scenes actually in that movie, and I always joke about it as I would have been right along with her, is the, <laughs> the the character in it who runs out and is standing on top of, I think it's the Chrysler building with the sign, welcome yeah. you know, alien Oh, and she was in L.A. That
0: was the girl in L.A. that was out oh, there. Is it was L.A.,
1: okay, yeah. um, that, that does that and then you know, promptly gets blown up when you know, the thing uh, opens and destroys the building. And it's one of those where I think that's a, a sort of great presentation of – we don't know at that point in time what kind of an effect this is going to have. So you kind of it, your question is: Is would this almost be decided retroactively, where you know if we have by whoever's a, left, by whoever's <laughs> left? Well, it, but assuming that is a friendly contact, yeah. something which is not malicious, and maybe it is. It's just we receive a radio message, so there's nobody here. There's it's something we need to respond to. It still would potentially completely alter the functioning of Earth. Um, but what does, you know, retroactively we look at it and say what happened on that day, and there is a bit of that. I think you you have force majeure sometimes being decided retroactively, mm-hmm.
0: where we looked at an event and said, hey, we didn't think that was going to be as big of a deal as it ended up being. Well, that's how these things come up procedurally. Somebody doesn't perform, they get sued for it, and the person didn't perform says, well, there was a force majeure, and you try to you know shoehorn whatever happened into the buckets of category set out in the contract. Yeah. The other question I think you bump into is exactly what is alien contact. I mean, that's not really civil unrest. I mean, cause civil
1: unrest but it wouldn't actually be civil unrest yeah. in itself. It probably isn't a natural disaster, assuming we say this is a friendly contact. And again, I try to treat it as like we just receive a radio signal,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, which has basically no impact on us other than indicating we are not alone.
0: Yeah, I've, I've found... T- tell me how you feel about this, but... Becoming a lawyer has ruined a lot of these kind of movies for me. Like I, I can't watch them without thinking, how would this play out? Like things happen. I see like an asteroid hits a building, and I'm just like, ooh, gosh, the insurance claims, you know? Yeah,
1: (laughs) well, that's I don't say much, but more to action movies. With you know, okay, now that we've destroyed the the perpetual you know fruit cart in conjunction with it, does the guy who owns the fruit cart have a cause of action against the police car that just ran into (laughs) it? You know, sort of things like that.
0: Like all these movies involve just cities being leveled, and I always think like someone has to clean up, clean up after all of this. Like, how, yeah. how do you not hold these people responsible? It's interesting enough that i have never really made a movie having those kind
1: of you know like fallout impacts. I mean, as as bad as I think you can say some of the movies are, and I I'm a huge fan of the of the franchise. The Transformers movies at least tried in some respects to deal with the aftermath. Yeah, um, and you know things like that. X Men I think did as well. Kind of the idea of trying of to the, deal with a bit of the
0: aftermath. One of the Avengers ones kind of had another movie that talked about cleaning, showed some scenes of cleaning up afterwards but yeah. anyway we're running long so we're going to move on to uh, some listener questions our first question comes from Adam K uh, in Minnesota via Facebook Adam, I'm going to paraphrase your your lengthy missive. Adam says, I am hurt and dismayed that you left out the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. He's talking about the Jedi episode. Uh, And especially the Hobby Lobby case, which just about discards entirely the notion that a belief need be well-ensconced before one can refuse a neutral demand on it. Uh, There is nothing in that case that would prevent a Jedi from refusing to provide insurance for genetic testing of babies because it might interfere with the midichlorians as long as it's sincere. And Adam says... Otherwise, keep up the great work. So uh, (laughs) by way of background, Adam and I go way back. He's a labor lawyer and uh, knows way more about uh, this particular aspect than I do. The Religious Freedom Restoration Act... Uh, is obviously a congressional act. And Kirk and I were talking more about just classic First Amendment free exercise principles. But Adam's point is that the Supreme Court has since interpreted this act to basically provide even more protection than what the First Amendment does, which sort of effectively makes the free exercise clause superfluous under current law.
1: Yeah, I, I think you know the thing you really get into in conjunction with this is that we have secondary law now coming into play to basically say, hey, there's specific protections
0: associated with this. It's kind of unusual, right? Usually we're fighting with Congress and saying, yeah. no, you can't infringe our rights. This is a case where they're expanding them even further.
1: Yeah, and that's, and I think the other thing to keep in mind in conjunction with, and I sort of uh, you know, I pointed this out sort of previously, it still does have a lot of these aspects of sincerity, which is one of the things we were really trying to get across in the Jedi episode um, was... What exactly does it mean to sincerely believe this? I mean, still the evidentiary problems. Too, yeah, like and the evidentiary problems associated with it. Um, but it is, you know, definitely I think a, a good point to bring up and something we didn't.
0: Yeah, and uh, and I have to say two two demerits to Adam for mentioning midichlorians at all. Oh, I mean, that may be more than
1: two demerits. <laughs> I mean, that's you know, we, we all know that midichlorians do not actually exist, even no. if the force
0: does. I refuse to acknowledge that that's canon. Yes. Okay. Our second question comes to Krista M via Facebook. She says, "I was shocked when Ben mentioned that Wizards of the Coast had a on the card-tapping mechanism in Magic the Gathering? Now that the patent has expired, how might they protect the way their game is played to prevent copycats? What's to stop copycats from coming in and using the same rules with different art under a different name? Well, this has kind of a happen. Have you played Hearthstone, Kirk?
1: Yeah, I've definitely <laughs> played Hearthstone. If you do not know, Ben and I play Hearthstone a lot. We love Hearthstone. Um, and things like that. I've also played a number of other true collectible card games. I played Marvel Overpower. I played Doom Trooper back in the day. Um, I think we both played the Star Wars yes. um, you know, game. I played the Star Trek game. Uh, one of my favorite ones and I'll go ahead and call out a a little company you probably never heard of was a card game called On the Edge
0: I used to play Spellfire when that was popular for a very short amount of time
1: also out a really rare one if anybody remembers Wyvern
0: I do not um, well, anyway, Krista, that's our next episode. Uh, we're going to talk about game mechanics in Episode 8. That was going to be this episode, but then the eclipse happened and Houston happened. We had a we force had to, majeure event. We had a force majeure event that forced us to change our schedule. So uh, next episode, we're going to talk about game mechanics, how you can protect them, or, or more specifically, why you can't for the most part. Uh, but uh, that's coming up next. So, uh, Kirk, I think that's all we got for today. I think that's all we got for today. All right. If you have a question, you can ask us on Twitter at lggpod, or you can email us at lggpod. Podcast at gmail.com you can also talk to us on our Facebook page search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy Uh, and if you like what you hear please give us a review we really really appreciate that it helps people find us Uh, five stars however many stars and uh, like I said next time we're going to talk about video game mechanics Uh, and uh, we'll get into that in the next episode sounds good alright thanks all The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice, LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri.